Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with the strong scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss it, straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted. Slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects. Paragraph the punches. Calamitous intent. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about dreaming. Not the kind of dreaming we do in our sleep, but the kind we do while we're awake, with our eyes wide open. The kind that paves the way for our future and governs our every action and choice. The kinds of dreams that can sit on a shelf for a lifetime or create a life of expansion and self-actualization. My guest today is Whitney Johnson. Whitney is the author of Dare, Dream, Do. Remarkable things happen when you dare to dream. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you so much for coming back on the show. Whitney was our guest a few weeks ago to discuss the power, necessity, and challenges of disruption and her most recent book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Whitney is the leading thinker on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption. She co-founded Rose Parks Advisors, an investment firm with Clayton Christensen, and was an institutional investor ranked analyst for eight consecutive years. She is a wife and mother, a blogger, and frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Whitney was named one of Fortune 55's most influential women on Twitter and a future thinker finalist by Management Thinkers 50. She is the co-founder of the 40 Over 40 list and active in her community and church. And today we're going to be talking about dreaming. So Whitney, I want to start where we left off last time. We were just at the end of the interview talking about the natural progression of your two books. And at first glance, the books seem like they're very different. We were talking about, um, in actuality, they really are a progression. So finding and expressing your authentic self and then jumping to sort of making calculated decisions to get external results. Was that intentional when you you jumped from Dare, Dream, Do to Disrupt Yourself? Absolutely not. I, I, I think, you know, I, my life has been very discovery-driven, and um, someone said to me recently that the first book that you write tends to be autobiographical. I think there's something that's inside of your head that you feel like you have to say, and that's really what my first book was, what I'd been thinking and feeling, and so I said it. And so, yes, there's a progression, but I think that once I had said that and gotten those ideas out into the world... I could focus on some other more technical business aspects of how I think. Now, when I think about Dare, Dream, Do, in many ways, um, it's, it's about figuring out what your strengths are and, and getting to the point where you're willing to own those strengths, what you do uniquely well, and what you can bring to the world. And in Disrupt Yourself, I talk about the importance of playing to your strengths in order to be successful. And so... I suppose in some ways that the first book is really this extended exploration of tapping to into and then owning your distinctive strengths so that you can be successful in your life however you decide that you're going to measure success. And while we're talking about dreaming today, I was thinking about the format. I think we'll talk about dreaming in general, but also the very specific challenges that women face when they are attempting to dream and then especially then when they're attempting to, to do. Um, we had also at the end of our discussion last time talked about ships and harbors and the necessity of both and being sometimes a ship and sometimes a harbor. And I'm just going to quote from your book. 
you say, women often think of themselves as a safe harbor, especially in the context of family life. But it's just as important to be a ship, especially one that can navigate new territory. When we leave the dock and seek our dreams, we can better teach our children, our friends, and our colleagues how to navigate the world. <laughs> I'm just reading that this time. I'm imagining all of our children on the dock as we sail off saying, but mommy, wait. <laughs> <laughs> come back, come back. I can't find my backpack, um, which I hadn't thought of before. Maybe it was my day today. Um, so it's, it's, I think, unique experience that women have when they are learning to and um, beginning to really discover and identify who they are and then and what their dreams are. Steven Spielberg said, be ready to hear what whispers in your ear when he was talking about dreams. And so it's not often or all the time something that is really loud. It right, might be sort of a, a faint cry. In what ways is dreaming a, a process? I think it's a process in a lot of ways. Um, if you think about a child, uh, as children, we all had dreams, but they weren't necessarily real dreams, but more a projection of what we thought we could be or wanted to be when we grew up. So for example, I loved the TV show Bewitched. Um, I wasn't going to grow up and be a witch, um, but I loved how, at least I think I wasn't, um, but I loved how she mothered and she seemed to have things in hand and how she could solve problems. And so that was something that I had of kind of the dream of the kind of mother that I wanted to be, but it wasn't a real dream. And so I do think that our dreams um, evolve over time. Over time, we encounter certain problems, problems that need to be solved we then match that with things that we do well. And, um, and over time, we figure out, okay, here's what I do well. Here are my strengths. How do I match them to a problem that needs to be solved that somehow begins to call to me? Um, but I think that for most of us in figuring out what those dreams are, it's a very, very gradual process. The beauty of dreaming is, in fact, we can date dreams because unlike relationships that we may have, um, there's a no commitment clause. And so you can take on one dream and date it for a while and say, huh, that was interesting, but I think I'll only go on one date with that dream. And then over time, you get better, at least I think we, we get better at being able to figure out what feels right in my brain. Um, ideas begin to flow around those dreams. And what feels right in my heart around these dreams? It feels good to me. It feels like this is feeding my soul, my person, the, the essence of who I am. And as those two elements come into play, I think that the dream begins to become delicious to us. And I think that's when we know it's a dream worth doing. But again, over time, it's, it's a process and it's something that we discover and rediscover over and again throughout our lives. And do you think that's a skill to be able to recognize that, that place where the, the dream does match who we are and that it feels good. That's, that's another thing that the Spielberg was talking about, that it's this whisper and it really plays to our human intuition. And we have to be aware enough and, and skilled enough at listening and hearing when there is that match, like when it fits in, the key fits into the lock. Yes, I, I think we do become skilled at it. And in, in part, because um, so much of our life when we're younger is um, the emphasis is placed on the things that we don't do well. Um, you know, you need to improve on this and you need to improve on that. And gee, wouldn't it be great if you got, you know, an A in, you know, this class. 
um, you know, which was probably your worst subject. Meanwhile, you're sailing through these other classes. And so as a consequence, we tend to place a lot of value on things that we've worked really, really hard to learn how to do and a lot less value on things that we do reflexively well. And so um, we, I think early on in our careers and in our life generally, we tend to go after dreams that require things that we've learned to do well, but not necessarily things that we do reflexively well. And I don't think that we've found the right dreams for us until we're willing and able to pair those with what we do instinctively well. And it takes most of us a while to be willing to really own what we do uniquely and remarkably well. And do you think that's a cultural thing or a sort of nature and nurture question in that, you know, if your child's indoor reading all the time, you might be saying, oh, you got to get out and play sports. And if they're playing sports all the time, oh, you need to read more. And, and so schools aren't really focused on helping children to find their element and then yes, I definitely think there is a a cultural aspect to it. Not just schools, though, but I think we as parents do it as well. Um, I think in part because we're, we're trained to look for the mistakes, we're trained to look for where the weaknesses are, where the gaps are. And so just as we see it in ourselves and those around us, we see it in our children, especially. And so we you know, continually find ourselves wanting to sort of shore up their weaknesses as opposed to um, simply emphasizing the things that, wow, you know, that's pretty neat the way you're doing that. And that's interesting. And I like that. And that's fascinating and, and emphasizing what they do do well rather than what they don't do well. Okay, so I'm going to combine my next question with your bewitched reference because <laughs> I think they go well together. I was going to ask you with through your work with the two books and and your your working life and family life, if you had come to the belief that there's a type of person who dreaming and then actualizing their dreams comes more easily. And I was thinking about bewitched when you talked about her and something again I'd never thought of before that she really is navigating these extremely different two worlds and trying to live a life where she has a foot in each and and you know focusing on everyone sort of getting along but being able to to progress um with with really a foot in each of these two worlds and she's super capable that's fascinating i love that metaphor love it um Okay, so what's the question exactly? So my question is, if you've, you've through reading, writing the books and, and just your work, is there a certain type of person that you think innately has qualities that it's easier for them to dream, recognize the dream, and then move ahead with, you know, daring and doing? I, uh, yes and no. Um, well, I actually think everybody has dreams. I, I think what I would say is that... Um, the question is, how do we motivate ourselves to go after them? So one of the things that was really interesting for me in writing this book is people said to me, well, why didn't you say dream, dare, do, or dream, you know, why, why, why wasn't dream first? And uh, my thought was, if I had been writing this book to eight-year-old girls, because this book is primarily written for women, um, though men have read it and liked it, I would have written dream first. But one of the things I think that happens is as we grow up is that we stop dreaming. And so we get very good at sort of figuring out what's important and what might be something that we would like to do. And we get superb at executing and in balancing lots of things, but we lose that sense that 
that dreaming is something that's our privilege to do. And so we have to figure out how to be willing to, to dream, even though once we have a dream, we can execute on it pretty well. Interestingly, I think that boys are different from that. I think that boys tend to be actually pretty good at the at the dreaming and the daring, but the doing part tends to be more difficult for them. And so the challenges are different for girls and for boys. Um, and so I think we all are good at one piece of this. Some of us are really good at the dream. Some of us are good at the do. Some of us are good at the daring. And so we have to just figure out, and I know I'm just now talking out both sides of my mouth, but figure out which one we do really well. And then the ones that aren't as easy for us, we may have to work at it. As to how to motivate ourselves to work at it, there's two schools of thought. For some of us, we're motivated by, wow, if I go out and do that thing and climb that hill, won't that be fun? I'll be so excited. And that's called being promotion focused. But most of us are prevention focused. And we think to ourselves, if I don't move forward, it's standing still. And how will it feel if I stand still? And so for me, I've realized I'm prevention focused. And I have to think to myself, if I stand still, I'll get stuck. And I don't want to be stuck. So I'm going to move forward. I'm going to go ahead and dare and go after that dream. And I've got the skill to do. And once I put those three together, then I can make my dreams happen. So really understanding and identifying your personal strengths and superpowers, it's not only important in daring and the dreaming part, but also the doing that in every element, that's important to, to really be aware and becoming more aware of who we are, what motivates us, what, what maybe stops us from action. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the different uh, personal, personal strengths that we have and, and the, the categories that you mentioned in your book, innate talents versus skills that you have uh, acquired. Mm-hmm. And then the relationship of identity and agency, since it's okay. all sort of wrapped yeah. up together. Absolutely. So one of the first things I talk about is um, how do you, because you've got this this amalgam of things that you can bring to bear on on making a dream happen, and and also more importantly, figuring out what your dreams are. And one of them is discovering what your innate talents are. Now the trick is to figure out what those are and so and get at questions that actually help you so for example ask yourself questions like what did you enjoy doing as a child and then looking behind what you enjoy doing as to the why you enjoy doing it so for example I loved to sew well I don't sew as an adult but I love the creative process of putting pieces and ideas together. Another question you can ask yourself is what do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? That's usually a pretty good clue. What are things that make you feel strong? You feel successful after you do them. And if you have children, look at what they are good at because oftentimes you know, because there is a lot of the uh, nature aspect, you know, there's the whole genetic code piece. Sometimes our children um, are very good at something that we thought we weren't good at, and we realize maybe I am good. And so those are some clues that I think can be very helpful in figuring out what your innate talents might be. And was that easy for you? Are you someone who's pretty self-aware? Do you feel that was it was simple for you to sort of once you started asking yourself those questions to identify it? Or did you have to start keeping lists and at the end of the day, saying, what did I really enjoy or really <clears throat> research deeply? I, you would think that because I am reasonably self-aware, I would be able to figure it out. But it's just not that easy. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I've realized um, 
So, for example, my husband had said to me for quite a while, you know, you're actually really good at coaching people, at, you know, sort of helping them disrupt themselves. And I was like, no, 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 no. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to earn money doing that. That's ridiculous. And I didn't value it. I thought everybody can do that. And, and besides, isn't that kind of a girly thing to do? So I'm, you know, airing all my dirty laundry right now as I'm telling you all this. And so I did not value it. And at one point, actually, necessity is oftentimes the mother of invention and innovation. Um, we were in a little bit, you know, things there were things were difficult financially for a bit, and so it was like maybe I do need to do this because I, you know, I need to earn some some additional money. And so I started to coach, and as I started to coach, I realized, oh, I am really good at this, and Eureka, I enjoy this. And so, but I wasn't willing to own that. I wasn't willing to acknowledge it until I was, my resources were at a minimum. And at that point, I tapped into something that I did uniquely well. And so again, we tend to overvalue what we are not and undervalue what we are. So I think that we can have a lot of these checklists, but oftentimes the things that we do uniquely well are staring us right in the face, but we don't acknowledge them. We ignore them. And one of the ways and something that I did not mention earlier is look at the compliments that people give you and you hear over and over and over again and you dismiss them. That is likely one of the things, one of your strengths and talents that you want to be playing to in order to figure out what your dreams are and then to make those dreams happen. You know, it's interesting because you had mentioned just a moment ago about talking out of both sides of your mouth. And I thought, no, you know, it's all consistent, even though there might be some opposites in there. And when we're talking about male, female, or feminine, masculine, you know, and, and that tr sort of generalizing as far as experience or challenges or traits, it gets tricky. And so I think, you know, for the rest of the conversation, maybe we'll just talk about feminine versus masculine traits, which both women and men can have a, a balance of each or, or stronger in, in one than the other as what we typically might associate with those traits. And the reason I point that out is because women are definitely culturally in our society in a very different place than men. There's no, there's no sort of arguing with that. Um, and yet dreaming and actualizing our dreams, as you say, you know, men like to read your book, the challenges can be very similar and we might have challenges in different parts of it. So how important is it to really understand uh, where your strengths and weaknesses are before you embark on the, the doing part of a dream? I think it's, I think it's really important and I, I, I actually think I want to back up for just a second about this masculine and feminine because I think this is an important and it's really underpinning the discussion that you and I are having right now. Um, it's based on Jungian psychology and what he said, Carl Jung said, and he was a, an acolyte of Sigmund Freud, but what he said was that in order to become a complete person, um, every individual, man or woman, needs to develop both feminine characteristics, which are about relationships and nurturing, and masculine characteristics, which are about power and achieving. And so for most girls, um, both nature and nurture, we tend to be better at the nurturing and the relationships, and we have to develop the power and achieving. So that's where it's important to have dreams 
that are around something outside of relationships. And for men, then the challenge becomes again, nurture nature, they're focused on power and achieving is how do they develop those feminine strengths of, of nurturing and development. And so oftentimes in women, because we're talking about women here, the dreams are an aspect of what helps us develop that other piece of ourselves, the, the masculine part of ourselves, of having a dream around something that we want to do just because it develops us. And so I think that in socially, men are, it's accepted for men to develop power and achieving. And when they learn to be more connected, and Barack Obama is a great example of this, is he was more connected. He had empathy very high. We tend to accept the feminine in men, if they've got a strong power and achieving component, what's more difficult for women is that we denigrate the feminine sort of to begin with. And then when, when women do want to have dreams and ambitions and gifts, we tend to shame them for speaking up. And so women tend to be in this real double bind. But I think that when we understand that, it's much easier for us both to value the feminine of wanting to have relationships, as well as to be willing to say, this masculine piece matters, and I'm going to go after it. This is making me think even in in the relationship to the types of intelligences that you talk about in your book that psychologist Howard Gardner defined, we are less... Um, well, not accepting, but we value some much higher in our, our society over others. And Absolutely. Absolutely. So he talks about, you know, there, there are lots of ways to be smart, but we tend to reward either linguistic intelligence where people are good at reading and writing, and we especially reward mathematical intelligence. You know, if someone's done well in their math classes, then they're going to be you know, they have a better chance of getting into college. But then he talks about there's lots of other kinds of intelligence, like there's, there's musical intelligence, and there is bodily kinesthetic intelligence, where you might be a really good athlete or really good at working with your hands. There's a naturalist intelligence that people who, you know, need to identify plants or work with the preparation of food have. Um, there's interpersonal, where you understand people, and Bill Clinton has this in spades. There's intrapersonal where you understand yourself and then there's ex existential where you have this sense of where you fit in the universe and all of those intelligences are valuable and important but our academic system tends to only reward the first two but as you start to understand what your intelligences are and play to those intelligences whether society values them or not you are going to be more successful. You mentioned the double-edged sword, and I was going to ask you if you thought that women lack ambition, but the question is not only do you think women lack ambition compared to men, but that women who are ambitious may suffer for it, so even an extra right. challenge. I don't think we lack ambition. I really don't. I think that um, from a young age, as, as I kind of alluded a moment ago, we're taught that our dreams, ambitions, and gifts aren't quite as important. There was some really interesting research done by a psychiatrist Anna Fells who asked this question do women lack ambition and what she found is that women tend to be considered or categorized as feminine either within the context of a relationship with someone else or when they're doing something for someone else so they're giving up resources they're listening um, they're helping they're acknowledging etc and so by definition if you've got a dream 
for yourself. Again, outside of the purview of your dream of, of mothering and nurturing, but a dream that's about something that you just want to do, then you're considered not feminine. So you're put into this terrible double bind. And we know that girls are oftentimes shamed if they speak up in class. And so, so it's, it's a double bind. But again, once you're aware of it and you realize, oh, I just felt embarrassed when I raised my hand and I spoke up, not because I did something bad inherently, but because society is telling me that that's not okay to do. And once you're aware of that, then you can start dealing with that double bind and say, you know what, union psychology, I need to develop my feminine side, my masculine side, I'm responsible for this, there's some systemic bias out there. I know it's there, but I can deal with it now that I understand it. And it's almost a triple bind, you know, when you explain it that way, because I'm thinking, you you know, this idea of identity and, and creating a strong identity being related to agency and your ability to achieve, it's almost a triple bind in that you have identity, what you're finding, what's your true authentic identity mixed with then, is that then somehow contradicted by what is a feminine or masculine identity, and then connecting that with agency with your ability to be actually to achieve your dreams. Oh, interesting. Yep. Interesting. Well, and I think you're touching there on this identity piece. There was a really interesting study done by a psychologist, Timothy Peichel. And he, his question that he set out to answer is, why do teenagers procrastinate? <laughs> you know, because teenagers do, they procrastinate. And what he discovered is that they procrastinate or procrastination is inversely correlated with identity, meaning when you know who you are, what you're about, what you're sort of feel like you're supposed to accomplish in life, then you're less likely to procrastinate. And the reason then that teenagers procrastinate is they're still asking and grappling with those really big questions like, who am I and what am I meant to do? And so what's fascinating to me then is for us as adults, if we find ourselves saying, well, once I get A, B, and C, and D wrapped up, I'll start dreaming. Actually, he would turn that on its head and say, figure out who you are and you'll stop procrastinating and you'll be able to get A, B, and C done. And so I think that that's actually very helpful. But to your point, yeah, it, there's, there's, an, I, there's a triple bind because we're discouraged in the first place of even figuring out what our identity is. And so that makes it more difficult for us to get out and do the do part. And so perhaps that's the reason why so often chiefs of staff are women to men because they're able to do extremely well but they do it extremely well on behalf of another person which is a traditionally feminine role all right we're going to just take a station break this is ellie newman on that got me thinking i'm talking with whitney johnson we're talking about dreams this is kdpi 88.5 fm ketchum so whitney i want to keep going with that a little bit some of the the typical challenges that are specific to women or feminine specific challenges. We talked a little bit about women's contributions are often overlooked or undervalued when they are playing a role that's maybe typically assigned as as feminine. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just, you know, I came across this basketball player a few years ago that I found fascinating. His name is Shane Battier. At the time he was playing for the Houston Rockets and then he ended his finished up his career playing for the Miami Heat. And Michael Lewis, who brought us Liars Poker on the blind side, wrote about him. And he found that Shane Battier was one of these um, players that 
people called him the no stats all-star because he was an all-star player, but no one really knew who he was. They said when he's on the court, you know, we don't really know what he does, except that whenever he was on the court, his teammates played better and his opponents played worse. And so he somehow made everything come together. And the only way that they were able to sort of figure out how good he was is when they started measuring different things. And when I think about Shane Battier, I think that there are a lot of similarities between feminine strengths and particularly when those strengths are displayed in women is everything seems to work better when women are around, but no one actually knows what they're doing. And I think that that's And so one of the things that women in particular can do to help other women is to acknowledge and value some of those feminine strengths that they see in other women so that as they are noticed, women are um, not only acknowledged for them, but compensated for them when it comes to the workforce specifically. So before we dig a little deeper into that, let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned with um, Jung and, and Robert Johnson's um, story on psyche and the sort of the you know the the nature the feminine nature and this this sometimes challenge of doing for others versus doing for the self and finding that balance. So if you just could quickly go over the you know there's a whole book on it, but but the myth of psyche, the psyche myth, yeah, yeah she sure. struggles with. So so that was you know a, a fantastic uh, myth and um, and I found it. To, I, I first discovered this through Jean Shinoda Bolin, who talked about this being a myth that helps us understand the um, psychology of feminine development. And so there are four tasks that Psyche has to do. The first task is that she has to sort seeds. Um, you know, they, there's this huge jumble of seeds that are in front of her. She has to sort them. She gets completely overwhelmed by them until there's this whole army of ants that comes to her aid. And that army of ants has been described as her intuition. And so when she was willing to rely on her tuition, she was able to sort the seeds. Um, the second task, and I am just about to lose, remember, forget what it was. Okay, I'll go to the third task. The third task was um, she had to get <clears throat> dip a cup of water into this uh, stream or actually river that was against a jagged cliff. It was completely something that she could not do. But this time an eagle came to her aid and the eagle came to her aid. It dipped the water, the cup of water into the stream. And then she was able to complete that task. The fourth task is the one that is the most challenging for her because it requires that she goes down to Hades and gets this box of ointment. And the reason it's a challenge for her is it requires, this time she's on her own, there's no eagle, there's no ant coming to her aid. She has to do it on her own. And in the process of doing it on her own, she has to say no to people who are asking her for her help. And Which, isn't that at some point even a drowning man is hanging on the side of the boat yes, and knocking exactly. him off if she wants exactly. to succeed? Yeah, and that's that's the hardest the hardest task for her. And and so what I discovered in this is that you can never really say yes to the people that you love, um, whether it's the drowning man, the drowning child, you know, the drowning coworker, until you learn how to say no. Because otherwise, you'll never know how to prioritize. And and life, by definition, requires that we make choices. And so in order to be able to say yes to the people that we love, we have to also learn to say no. And this, this myth 
illustrates that very, very powerfully. Yes, there are times where you need to get help from people, the eagle, the ant, but there are also times where you need to learn to say yes, which is the language of connection, and you need to learn to say no, which is the language of, of protection. Oh, and the other one's the fleece. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so that's too. the second one. Thank you. The, sh the, the fleece on the sheep. And so she has to get some fleece off of these rams. And it's funny that I forgot this one, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So she has to get the fleece off the rams. Of course, she can't go into the pen where the rams are because they have these big horns. And if she goes into that pen, they will kill her. They will butt her with their rams. And so this time the reeds um, along in the field say to her, just wait until they go to sleep for the night or they leave for the night and then you can collect the fleece off of the brambles. And so this one, again, she has the reeds helping her, but this is to help her understand power and that if she is only willing to exert power in a very formal way and not necessarily an informal way and also if she isn't careful, power can overtake her, then um, she will lose lose the, the feminine piece of herself. And so this is another important task for her to remember. And the reason I think it's interesting that I forgot that, and I think there's a Freudian slip there, is that women tend to be very uncomfortable with power. Um, we think of power as being something distasteful oftentimes, something that only, you know, sort of Meryl Streep and the devil wears Prada wheels, you know, she's the devil that wears Prada. And yet for women to actually get anything meaningfully done in the world, we have to be willing to wield power. And I think a wonderful, wonderful example of that is Malala Yousafzai, who, who, you know, stood up to the Taliban. And so the power in the conventional way that we think of may be distasteful. You know, there's Lady Macbeth. But if we really are willing to wield power from a place of our feminine strength, we can be tremendous forces for good and for making um, important and wonderful and meaningful things happen in the world. Well, and it's also the crux individually to be able to dare and dream and then do as far as not being a supporting character. You call it being your own Batman and crafting or recrafting your personal narrative. And for women to be able to learn how to do this, but also feel okay about doing it. Absolutely. And, and again, I think that's why for me, the, the work of Robert Johnson and Carl Jung is so important is that, um, if we understand that in order to truly grow up as a woman, we have to develop both our feminine and our masculine, then we can give ourselves permission to not only be Robin, but also to be Batman, that we have to know how to be both, which goes back to the metaphor of if you are a good ship, you can be a better harbor. And if you're a good harbor, you can be a better ship. And so let's talk th about that a little bit more in relationship to the hero's journey, because everyone is inspired and moved by the hero's journey. And yet women are, are the, have a specific, a, a number of specific challenges in relationship to that based on cultural expectations and also their place in society typically and, and where they've been. Um, and even within the women's movement. And I think one element that is critical for, for people to step out of that and to, to redefine is to find support somewhere. And, Absolutely. And, 
And I think, you know, at this point in, in feminism, in the feminist movement, you know, we're still dealing with the mommy wars and leaning in or opting out and real criticism um, from from people, you know, Linda Hirschman's get to work, and that 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 we're blaming also the blaming of women, that that women were were failing the collective good of of all women. And when I read that, I was like, okay, again, we're blaming, you know, the women for that, right. for exactly. unequal fact, pay and glass ceilings. Yeah. In fact, just last week there was an article by Penelope Trunk, Trump Trunk where she was. Calling, calling a Sheryl Sandberg a sham because she wrote Lean In and I thought, really? Yeah. I mean, did she not understand that she was talking about leaning in, you know, with regard to her work? Like if she's going to work, then lean in. And so why do we do this, I guess, is really the question. And I think that we do it when we're insecure of our own place. I remember when I first got married, I, um, I had decided that I was not ready to have children yet. And yet I knew a lot of women who would, you know, basically get pregnant on their honeymoon and have a baby nine months later. And I, I was so critical of them, like, how could they do this? And what's their problem? And I know at the same time, they were critical of me because I wasn't having children. And yet, I realized that the reason I did this is that I was not secure with my own choice. And one of the things that I think we as women, we continue to do this is because we're not secure with our own choices and not willing to say, and this is really, if you think about it, the absolute point of feminism is to allow women to make a choice. If they want to be with their children, then be with their children. If they want to work, then be with their, be at work. If they want to do both, then do both. And so I think that we claw at each other. It's out of our own insecurity, unfortunately. But I think, you know, women tend to do it a lot less as they get older. And I think that's because they realize that we're all trying to do some very hard things. And so, please. No, no, no. No, I was just going to say, I was uh, if we could talk a little bit more, Whitney, about how you reconciled that. Because when I finished reading your book, I, I was thinking, oh, Whitney could just like take some of this and redistribute it. And it's the complete modern day feminist manifesto. And then I thought, well, wh what an unlikely voice, uh, you know, at first I thought and others might think uh, based on on your growing the way you grew up and your religion and what you talk about in the book of um, this perception within your community, your religious community, that career and motherhood don't mix um, or that it's, it's wrong to put career over uh, family and that there's some a real disconnect though within that as far as valuing free agency and then the experience that some young women feel feel ashamed for wanting to focus on their career. I'm just wondering how you've seen that play hmm. out in the last 20 years while you were working and what you see for the future because I must say I was completely ignorant when I started to dive a little deeper and see that there are all of these feminist voices within the Mormon religion. Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And I I think it's it's been a long time coming for me to reconcile this, you know, how do you put these pieces together? And I've touched on some of this of this aspect of of psychology, I think that um, one thing I will say is we think about the feminine strengths. I would, I would 
be willing to say, though I could be wrong, but there's probably no organization in the world that is better at helping women develop their feminine strengths, which is really rare these days. I mean, so if you're if you want to develop the feminine aspect of your personality, you you can certainly learn how to do that within the you know within my Mormon faith. Um, I think you can obviously learn how to work um, by you know developing your masculine side of being in school and at work. I think the way that I have reconciled it is is based on the psychology, but then also based, and this goes back to sort of a very deep sense of myself and who I am, is I had to ask a question very early on is, is it true that God loves boys more than girls? And the question that was just came to, you know, the answer to me was no, he loves girls as much as he loves boys. He loves us equally. And if that was true then, it meant that just as he wanted boys to develop their masculine side of going out and working and develop their feminine side by being good fathers and good husbands, then it also had to be true that just as he wanted women to develop our feminine side of nurturing and relationships, he also wanted to de- us to develop our sense of self. Culturally, that is very difficult to do. But I think that sometimes the culture is behind what is actually what God wants for people and for us in general. And so that is how I reconciled it. I'm very devout. I'm very faithful. Um, and so I just try to encourage, and this is part of where this whole idea of I want women to pursue dreams and to believe that their dreams and their ambitions and their gifts are just as important as those of their husbands or their sons or their brothers. And I want to talk a little bit about that. That fi- Another thing that, that the Mormon Church absolutely offers is a, a support network, and especially among women. Um, you had said on your blog that one of the reasons for writing the book was that so many women aren't dreaming, and because they aren't dreaming, they're finding themselves desperate and depressed, and you wanted to, to create a guide to inspire women and to... to teach some skills on how to dare dream and do. Yeah. So, Oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, that's it. So what I, you know, the thing that was interesting to me, and I don't think I realized this when I was writing it, but um, when I, when I was writing the book, I realized that, you know, I had, for me, I had learned in the workplace to develop this masculine piece of myself, to go out and have a career. And I've been very successful. But I realized that when I started to have children, I felt completely inept at mothering, like just inept. Um, and so I found that there were all these women who were kind of living this alternate reality of, of mine of having had children very young, that I was learning from them how to mother and how to parent. And so as I learned from them, now a lot of their children were getting older, I thought, okay, they know how to mother, but they're not sure how to go out and do something for themselves. And so in some ways, this book was an homage to the many women who had taught me how to mother and how to parent, both an homage and both a what I hoped would be helpful to them as they're trying to, as their children are growing up and they're trying to figure out what they wanted to do next, to be able to be helpful to them in figuring this out. And I hope it's accomplished that. And I, I, I think that it has. And it, certainly this isn't geared just toward um, women, you know, Mormon women, but it is 
I think you cannot read this book without, I think it does appeal to people who are grappling with the career parent piece. And I think it does um, assume that you are a person of faith in some form or fashion. I think it's got to appeal to any woman that is not a millennial. And even the millennials, <laughs> too, can find it helpful to find that work-life balance, because that certainly has not been sorted out yet. And I think a lot of women that are from the Gen X generation, they're kind of like, ha ha, wait till you really, you know, you have all these ideas, but wait till you try to put it into practice. That's right. That's right. And I will talk to women who are 20 somethings who haven't had children yet and they, they don't get it and yeah. they don't understand it. But what they will tell me is that they, they're all sort of about their career, but one of their, you know, sort of secret hopes that it's not very popular to, to say is that what they really want is they also want to get married and they want to have children. And so they will grapple with it, but it's just like, you know, those of us in our 20s said, oh, the grass, the glass ceiling doesn't exist. And I say to people when they say that to me, I understand. But when you discover that it does, which will come at some point in your 30s, here's what I want you to know. So it's just one of those things we just have to discover when we're ready to discover it. And to understand the history as to way, maybe why the glass ceiling doesn't come down as early as it used to. <laughs> so in those last couple of minutes we have, I want to... I wanted, hit on two things. One, the idea of, of yes, you, you have a very specific religion, but any of this dare, dream, and doing takes some uh, acknowledgement of, of serendipity and faith, however you want to frame that. And with, within the doing, I think it probably comes even in more, more relevant. One may be, it, well, at the beginning and the end, right? What is your dream? And then actually actualizing it. Um, you had said that for businesses, that 90% of businesses that start out with sort of an idea of where they're going to end up, that 100% of the businesses, that 90% of those businesses don't end up in the, the spot that they thought they would. And you also had talked about two different types of planning, conventional planning and discovery-driven planning, and that with, with dreaming, we definitely are focused on the discovery-driven planning. What are the most vital elements for success, do you think, in the doing um, phase, other than... Oh. Yeah. So first of all, I, I, I have to correct it's 70%. I wrote it wrong in the book. So you read 90% correctly, but it was actually 70%. But still, the, A lot. the, the More statistic than is, is important. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the most important part is to start. I mean, it really is because we can say all day long, if I had more time, if I had more money, if I had, you know, a fairy godmother like Oprah, I could get this stuff done. But what happens is that when we start, momentum breeds momentum. And so for me, that's the most important part of, of doing. And when we're willing to start and show up to our dream, resources start to show up to us. And so for me, that is the most important start. Start where you are. And when you're on the road, how important, based that the 70% of these businesses aren't ending up where they thought, how important is it to be flexible dur during your, your travels down that path? Oh, absolutely. You need to have a why, something that motivates you of, you know, what you care about in the, in, uh, you know, along the way. But, um, you know, we tend to like to make conventional checklists like today I'm going to get up and I'm going to take the kids to school and I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to wash the dishes or whatever it is. Um, and that's conventional planning. But when it comes to dreaming, 
um, discovery planning is what we need. We need to take a step forward. We gather feedback and we adapt accordingly because, as you said, 70% of all successful new businesses end up in a place that they hadn't anticipated. Like Groupon started out as an activism platform, bringing people together to fundraise for a cause um, or boycott retailers, which of course is ironic. So we just can't, we can't predict where it's going to take us. And so, so we just, we start, but then we take a step forward, we get a lot of information and then we, we adjust, we course correct as we go. And so that's discovery driven planning versus conventional planning. And when you're dreaming, you've got to focus on discovery driven planning. And I'm guessing there are more quote unquote mistakes on that path. Yes, because you're playing a different game. You're, you're, you're trying this, you're trying that. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let me try this. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try this. When you're with a conventional plan, you're like, I'm going to do this at 11, this at 12, this at one. There's a lot less room for error, but that's when you're sort of further down the line. When you're first starting, you've got to be discovery driven and allow yourself to do a lot of testing and sort of figuring things out and, and, and meaning be patient with yourself. So that's when you have to go pick up the next book, disrupt yourself and figure out <laughs> how to be comfortable with exactly. risk and the, the S curve. So, exactly. so the, the last question I'm, I'm going to leave us with, how do we best avoid having lived? How do we best avoid having lived the unlived life and become more of ourselves? Such a great question. And I think that the best way we do that is we listen to ourselves. Um, we all have a deep sense of who we are inside. And there, I think if every person were honest listening to our call today, there's something that's been sort of tugging at them just a little bit that is terrifying them. And if they will look at that and try to look at it in the face and move toward it, then they will live a full life as opposed to an unlived life. So walk in the direction of your fear. That's a signal to you that it's something that matters, that's important, and probably the right path for you to go down. And so I think I would say that's, you know, and remember, if it's scary and lonely, you're probably on the right path to making your dreams happen. Whitney, thank you so much. I just loved, I loved your books. Thank I love you. listening I, to you and reading, talking to you. We have to stay in touch. Yeah, we will. Okay, thank okay. you. We'll talk soon. Okay, okay all right, bye-bye. take care. 